0: Welcome to the Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. So good morning, rabbit hollies.
1: Good morning, Cat.
0: And how are we today? Very,
1: very happy actually. I mean, I was slightly annoyed that you're in the lead. With nine wins to Richard and mine having eight each. Yeah, I wonder how you feel about me now being level with you, Charles, on eight. It's very scary. Mm. There was a time when I was ahead, but it's a very long time ago.
0: It is a long time ago. This is not
1: like life. One (laughs) moment you're ahead, the next moment you're behind. Yeah. Well, I'm used to it now. I'm used to it. Mm. But no, I love it. I love this um, getting to grips with these themes. I was saying to Kat, because we were swatting before we came on air, I think I'm a real bore now when I sit next to people because no. I've got. I know, I know, I know. You, this is. Neither of you look entirely stunned, but I regurgitate these little nuggets that we pick up during our research.
2: But I yes. think I've got a bit annoying about this now because yes.
1: whenever anybody says anything
2: now, I go, "Oh, well, you know about da 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 da," yeah. and they look a little bit crestfallen because yeah. they think such breadth of knowledge, but it's simply because we've been doing rabbit hole yes. detectives. I just find the. These
1: weird people from the past, so fascinating. That's what I love. And the, what, the footnotes, isn't it? It's not the yes. great particularly. It's, it's the, not the grand sweep of your topic. It's the little bits that you can throw in. And, and people I, who didn't quite make the grade. And you realise yeah, yeah. that the, the history has been written
2: by the winners, obviously. Yeah. But the losers are so fascinating, aren't they? The quirky bits. Yeah. yeah. That's what I love. And, yeah, it, that's what it's about. I like a weirdo.
1: <laughs>
3: yes, <laughs> the weirdos—you yes. know, the
2: people who were kind of these charlatans, these mountebanks. And what's a charlatan? What's a mountebank? Why is that true and that not
1: true? You know, these are—I yes. know. I mean, I—I I had a con man come into my life recently, and it's so intriguing when it happens because. In retrospect, it's so entirely obvious, but at the time... Charles, I'm a vicar, not a con man. How many times <laughs> do I have to <laughs> You're a communard, not a con man. Um, no, but I, I think it's fascinating because they have the dazzling tricks, that, like last week, the hypnotic charm, etc. And then afterwards you think, how on earth did I fall for that one? And yet we yes. do, don't we?
0: So Richard, yes. you're going to start this week. So you are going to go with British accents this well, week.
2: This was at the request of a listener, I have to say. So I'm sort of honing in in an area where I had a moment's passing knowledge a few weeks ago, most of which I can entirely forgot. But this is very germane to us three, and I'll tell you why. Step with me, if you will, <laughs> to Northamptonshire. Well, we've all been there, haven't we? Charles, you lived there. Mm-hmm. I used to live there. Cat, you're a frequent visitor. If you were going to visit Charles and you were going on the train, where would you go? What station would you choose? Northampton. On what river does Northampton, oh. one of the most famous and ancient, not a city, it's a town actually, but one of the greatest and most significant and important towns in English history, on
1: what river? It's what Northamptonshire people would call the Nen. Mm. Thank you. But I if you were an interloper in Peterborough, you'd call it the Nene.
0: Yeah.
1: What would you call it?
0: We've been through this discussion quite a lot because there's something called Nen or Nene Valley Ware, type of pottery, and we, all the archaeologists argue what it should be called. I would have thought Nene.
2: Well, do you say that because you look at the N-E-N-E and you think, well, that, of course, is how it's pronounced. That if you were just taking a sort of informed guess at how that might be pronounced compared with the pronunciation of other English words spelt in a similar sort of way, you'd think it's neen. Yeah. Wrong, wrong, wrong. (laughs) It's nen. And the reason it's nen is because Charles and I come from the Northamptonshire end of that operation rather than the Cambridgeshire end of that operation. Up there... In Peterborough, it's Neen, but in Northamptonshire, it's been Nen. What's really interesting, though, it's on the move. So it used to be Northampton solidly Nen, Peterborough solidly Nene. Nene is beginning to conquer Nen. It's spreading down the river.
3: Can I throw into the mix Nen, Nene? Nen. In a book written by Urquhart Forbes in 1906, titled "Our Waterways: A History of Inland Navigation Considered as a Branch of Water Conservancy." The river is referred to as the Nen, but according to etymologists, the word is pre-English and pre-Celtic. But to complicate matters more, historians believe the spelling of the name has actually changed over the years, having been called the Nin N Y N in 1810 by draughtsmen on maps. So throw another one into the well,
2: mix. Well, I'm I mean, prepared to accept Nin. Yes. Nin. Nin. Okay. Neen.
1: Uh, <laughs> it's obvious and wrong. I think it is wrong.
0: You would have both heard this word before you read it.
1: It's, it is a tricky one to defend on how it looks.
2: Well, Thames, you would have, everyone calls it the River Thames, don't they? But yes. that's only because of George I, wasn't it? Is that right? Well, yeah, everyone called it the Thames. And then George I came along, Elector of Hanover.
1: Yes, and, uh, German speaking. Thames,
2: Thames, and so out of polite, this sounds like an urban myth, but I'm sure it's true, I'm sure the disembodied voice will look it up. But so it became the custom of the court, so as not to embarrass the king, yes. uh, to call it the Thames rather than the Thames. Yeah. What's this all about? It's about this extraordinarily close and complex relationship that are expressed through British accent. What is an accent? Well, accent is noises. It's related to dialect, but dialect is about vocabulary and grammar. We know a little bit about this, that England, Britain, having been around an awful long time and having been subject to flows of populations coming in through conquest or through immigration, it's a very mixed pot. For 1,400 years, we know English, which comes of a proto Germanic language, a bit like Swedish and, and German, a common root. But what happens is isolated groups seek to define the boundary of that group, and that's geographical, cultural it's also linguistic, so that the language that they speak there, which may be the same in terms of its components, the language spoken of people up the river a bit, develops its own distinctive sound. So you get accent. Northamptonshire is particularly interesting, I think, because if you know that county well, and this is not just Northamptonshire, it's typical of many English counties, accents change from town to town Mm -hmm. and from village to village. Mm -hmm. And someone with a tuned ear would be able to tell whether someone came from Rushton or Northampton or Kettering. Findon had its own accent in between Wellingborough and Kettering. I went for a walk one day with a dog and I walked down an alleyway in the town and someone had put a painted sign up on the door into their backyard and it went, clean up, arter your dug. And it was spelt arter (laughs) your dug. (laughs) Now that is Findon. You wouldn't get that in Earthlingborough. What you would get in Earthlingborough, for example, is you wouldn't say ours or yours. You would say an or yawn. So that's a very borough kind. It's a town that's two miles away, if that. Mm-hmm. But there are still these distinctive things. What's happening? People are defining themselves through the way they say things. Now, of course, what's happening also, uh, the history of England is also a history of immigration. You've got your Anglo-Saxons coming in, got your Jutes coming in from your Jutland. You've got your Danes coming in, Romans coming in. And all these sorts of people leave their trace behind them. Sometimes that's in words. For example, you will hear... Bern or you mentioned beck charles mm-hmm. beck is i think a loan word from old norse is yeah. that right yeah, yeah. Been amazing. So, so a beck is actually a, a, that's your viking heritage which is so obvious in your appearance also there in your speech as well but it's also in pronunciation there's an interesting one so we might say law and yet law would be somewhere we might say where and we're would come out of the way Geordie i'm thinking of in particular it's a very distinctive did you know that among English people, the Geordie accent is considered to be the most trustworthy one. So often if you were to run a, a call centre, for example, you might want to put people with the Geordie accent. Why was Gaza such a popular folk figure? Because he's a Geordie. And there's something about that that just makes people feel that this is trustworthy. Go to the north-east of England. My words, you'll get a completely different thing. Because you've got your Geordies, but then you've got your Mackhams. So in Tyneside, you're a Geordie. And then in Sunderland, Wearside, you're a Macam. And there are differences, obvious differences in the accent, actually, when you're there. And fierce rivalries between the two. Middlesbrough has got a different accent, too. I mean, you can know that they're they're related to each other because they sound broadly similar, but they also sound distinctively different, too. And that's because they've been formed in these particular sorts of ways, particular sorts of communities. When I was growing up in the 1960s, people shouted at each other. Hey, all right, me duck! A hey, all right, me duck! <laughs> Bellowing. What was all that about? Well, a hey, all right, me duck. Me duck is just a familiar, you know, just by saying my dear, whatever. A hey, all right means, are you all right? But why would you say, are you all right, my dear, in that way? Well, me duck is dialect. A hey, all right was shouted. And the reason it was shouted was because people worked in shoe factories. And shoe factories were noisy places. So you needed to shout to be heard. And also, that had a negative effect on your hearing. So, if you'd spent 30 years working in a shoe factory, you would probably had significant hearing loss. And I just remember older people just shouting at each Absolutely other in the right. street. right.
1: That makes sense. And I didn't know why that was. Yeah. Same in the mill towns of
2: the north, for example, wherever heavy industry. Not so in agricultural communities. I mean, I think in the West Country, Borsitzer sort of accent, as we would perhaps call it, although that's obviously not a real accent, less mediated by the effects of industrialization. And it was Saxons who went down to that part of the world. And so that kind of accent preserves that kind of culture, I think. There's some really interesting, well, modern ones, for example, London, Jamaican immigration in the 60s, 50s, and 60s, Windrush has created different speech patterns in London, for example. But it's not just people of that heritage who now speak that. For example, Axe. Have you noticed how? in well for london jamaican you don't say i asked to see someone you say i axed to see someone and now you've got kids who are not from that community have started pronouncing ask as ax and one of the reasons we speak the way we do is because we want to sound a certain way we want to express our allegiance our loyalty our identity our status within a certain group why do posh people all sound the same well it's partly that but it's also because of the public school system mm-hmm. so in the 18 18- 40s, 1850s, people of wealth and status started sending their boys to be educated together Until that time, aristocrats spoke with regional accents. So if you were a Percy of Northumberland, or a whoever of wherever it was, you would speak with a regional accent. It was only after everyone had been through Eton, or Harrow, Winchester, whatever it was, that they would all start sounding the same kind of way. You see, it's interesting in Scotland, there are still Scottish aristocrats who have a sort of Scottish aristocratic accent. And it's because they didn't go to an English public school, were made to a Scottish public school. So it's still preserved a little bit there. You can have posh people who don't sound like English posh people? Mm. Bradford Asian English is another one. Because there was a huge r- arrival of people to work in textiles in Bradford in the 1960s, often from Pakistan. You hear it and it's immediately distinctive. You can tell that someone comes from Bradford. But it's not just the people of Asian heritage who are now using Bradford Asian. That's spread into say white communities too, if you know what you know exactly what I mean. The most interesting place of all, Liverpool. This has always baffled me. When did Liverpool start going, oh, you are a mucky kid, Daisy. It's a dustbin lid. When did that all happen? Well, Scouse people say, Scouse, I should say, goes back to the 19th century. Sometimes a distinctive accent arrives in a port. Mm. Liverpool was a huge port and a big, big, big Irish immigration to there yes. in the 19th century. And it is believed that Scouse is really a combination of Lancastrian, because people in Liverpool used to speak, with just a Lancastrian accent, and it's the impact of the Irish immigration that has started making it sound... That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? But
0: the name, though...
2: Well, it's Lithuanian, I think, lobscouse. No. Where is
0: it? No. Norwegian. Tell me about Obviously, Lopskous. <laughs> which... I thought Lopskous
2: was a Lithuanian no. word.
0: No, there's some related with but It's is still a dish that we eat quite a lot. It's a sort of stew. Is it fermented? It's not fermented, <laughs> actually. It's a stew made of potatoes and carrots and, and meat. That's a yeah, Scandinavian There's a big Norwegian sailor presence as well in Liverpool. And I suppose
2: Liverpool. through trade between northern ports, then that was why you yeah, get Norwegians Lops- in Liverpool. Yeah,
0: to came to work.
2: Makes sense, doesn't it? Well... But Not according to <laughs> Professor Cowley of Leeds. <laughs> Professor Cowley done some very interesting research about this, and he says it's a more recent phenomenon than that. And actually, when we hear schaus, what we're actually hearing is a kind of version that has been refined through popular culture. It's the Beatles. Mm. It's Scylla. It's the Mirzi the beat. Birds. It's Brookside. Mm. There's evidence now is it, that people are speaking Liverpudlian now with a sort of Brookside accent from the television. And why is that? Well, because Liverpudlians, I suppose, are people who often have such a very proud sense of their own heritage, who've fought really, really tough battles over the years with poverty and hardship, particularly in the 1980s. bit of solidarity, we all know that. Football is incredibly important. So you've got People like the disembodied voice who's got this weird attachment to Liverpool Football Club. who has absolutely no reason to do so at all, no connection whatsoever. Just fair weather friend. Um, but nonetheless, they bring their own components to it too, and it is fascinatingly. Discrete as well if you go to north wales for example you can hear north walians you might actually have welsh as a first language speaking english with a slightly scouse sort of accent Mm. you'll hear it as far south as cheshire but st helens has a variation on it the wirral has a variation on it southport has a variation on it but the distinctiveness of scousness begins at prescott road It's very, very, very sharply defined, the edge of where Liverpudlians sounding like Liverpudlians begins. And it's to do with that coherent community. It's to do with the geography of the place. It's to do with it being a
1: port. It's to do with the localities. You're saying that these accents are carried by popular culture or, or reinforced, I suppose. But what's amazing to me is that they continue to exist when you have the bland tones of many presenters on the TV who are there's not received english it receive pronunciation but there's a sort of standard english bbc english yes but that hasn't conquered these regional accents which is a good thing isn't it it is a good thing I and mean, because people's identity
2: is rooted in community that is actually yeah. about People, flesh and blood, living in I mean people often regret, don't they, the sort of death of an accent or yes. I mean, I can't help but feel slightly sorry that Neen is creeping down the nen because
1: <laughs> I feel quite loyal to hmm. Northamptonshire and Northamptonshire ways but, of seeing. You know, last week, this is a battle that does take place. The Northampton croquet team beat the Peterborough croquet team. And the team that wins insists that the other one call the river by the accent they have for the whole year. until well, That's the next
2: interesting. Person. And you wonder, don't you, what ancient enmities perhaps. Yes. yes, More than the croquet well, mallet. In yes. that, it's sort of important, isn't it, in a funny sort of way. But the, the, this idea we have that there is a sort of deterioration in English. Lots mm-hmm. of people have said that when they hear London, Jamaica, for example, they go, oh, it's such a shame. It's not a shame at all. Dr. Johnson is very interesting about this. In 1747, I think he wrote, he had thought by codifying English in the dictionary, one of the things he would do would be preserve the purity of English accent and pronunciation. But he said, actually, that's a nonsense. Mm. It just changes. And you have to embrace and accept the change as we all do. Oh, young people now sound like Australians? going up, yes. like that, da, 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 da. it just happens. And it's because we live in a culture which is dynamic and alive and changing mm. and shifting. And I think you just have to be positive about that.
0: Absolutely agree. And do you have a favourite fact?
2: Well, I do. It's only a little fact, but I'm a bit fascinated with Liverpool. <laughs> Never forget the example of Curtis Warren, the most notorious drug dealer. In Liverpool. I should be careful what I say. Well, I can be not that careful at what I say because he has been to prison for drug related offences. He's actually out at the moment now. But he was famous for being the absolute linchpin of the drug trade in Liverpool. And he was involved in a trade which was global. And one of the sort of hubs of that trade was the Netherlands. And so, as a consequence, the Dutch police were particularly interested in Curtis Warren and wanted to keep tabs on him. So they tapped his phone. But they had to recruit <laughs> officers from the Merseyside police because they couldn't understand, even though they thought that extra English, they couldn't understand so what he was good. saying. And also, interestingly, he used backslang. So, job for boy. The reversing words sometimes, words that was used in sort of criminal cultures as a way of, it was actually used by traders as a way of sort of talking about shortchanging your customers or selling a dodgy bit of meat, really, by using backslang, reversing the word from its spelling so it says something else. Interesting man, eidetic memory. So he had an incredibly complex business empire, incredibly complex flows of money, all in his head and codified through accent and through Bach slang. And so these poor old, t- I remember van der Waal sitting there, yes. thinking, what the hell's this guy talking about and having to get all these officers from Merseyside in to try to decode it. That's my favourite fact.
3: So yeah.
2: disembodied voice has got his face on.
3: Uh, you mentioned the people of Middlesbrough known as smoggies, yeah. smog monsters. You also talked about axe and ask. It's quite an interesting background to it, but essentially you can trace axe Back to the 8th century, the pronunciation derives from the old English verb "axian." Chaucer used the word ax, and you may or may not be able to confirm this. It's in the first complete English translation of the Bible, ax, and it shall be given. I didn't know that, no. It is. But essentially it's become and remained very popular, certainly in the American South and in the Caribbean and in black communities in this country. And linguists and experts believe that essentially it's become a marker of identity yeah. and of community, which is why the word ax instead of ask is used, but neither is wrong
0: we're gonna have to move on sorry thank you you're welcome and Charles so your topic obviously we'll have to see how much you can really tell us about it that's true yes it's all secret really the secret service
1: yes I was originally going to do a broad sweep of secret services but I found so much on the US and the UK ones that maybe the other ones can come another time but I was really intrigued by the genesis of the US secret service so It was founded, really, to answer a crisis because America in the 1860s was dealing with so much counterfeit coinage and bills that a new body had to be set up as a part of the US Treasury Department. Over a third of the units of currency in circulation in the 1860s in America was fake. And this is because the states produced their own currency, their own notes, their own coins, but also it was down to individual banks. So it was a very difficult thing to stay on top of. And intriguingly, I love these sort of days in history that have so much going on. Abraham Lincoln decided on the 14th of April, 1865, to say, right, we're going to go ahead with the Secret Service. And that evening, he went to a play at the Ford's Theatre in Washington that very same day and was shot by John Wilkes Booth and died. And it's intriguing, because we now think of the Secret Service very much as a sort of bodyguard material for presidents, etc. And that was not its original purpose. So the day of the first assassination of an American president, the Secret Service came into existence. And then 30-odd years later, after the third president was assassinated, William McKinley, in 1901 it got this new status as the key bodyguards to presidents. And I know this is a rabbit hole, but I was so intrigued, I was looking into William McKinley, who I knew nothing about. Just the name. Yeah, but he was the last president of the United States to have served in the Civil War. And he's obviously a very remarkable man. He had started as a private and ended up as a major, so it's quite a lot of promotion. He died very, very bravely. So in the early 1900s and late 1800s, there was a a body of terrorists really called the anarchists who caused all sorts of problems, felling royalty and aristocracy around the world. And one of them spoke to a potential assassin in America who took it upon himself to kill McKinley in 1901. And McKinley was absolutely determined to be seen by as many people as possible. And the assassin took advantage of this and went up to him with a gun hidden under a handkerchief and shot him twice in the abdomen. Mm. McKinney, still conscious, saved the assassin's life. He was about to be torn apart by the mob, and he insisted, no, you mustn't do that. And then McKinney was taken into treatment and seemed to be doing very well. Very, very positive bulletins were coming out of the White House that he was going to be OK. But unfortunately, he got gangrene. And a very moving death scene where he eventually says, I, I realise which way this is going, and we ought to have some prayers. And his wife sobbing over him and singing hymns to him and him being very stoical when she says, I, I'd like to go as well. And he said, look, we're all going to go at some point. And he dies this very noble death. Oh. Anyway, I, I just wanted to bring McKinley back to life briefly because <laughs> I thought he was a rather remarkable man. Being shot in the abdomen is not a walk in the park. No, really? no, agony, of course. But he seemed to be OK until he got gangrene. And then he is succeeded by one of the great American presidents, Teddy Roosevelt, who really is a very independent, is a very free-spirited chap and very outdoorsy. And he does not want the Secret Service permanently in tandem with him. And he's always nipping out to Rock Creek Park to go riding or hiking, et cetera. And it's interesting in these early days of the Secret Service being attached to the presidency that these presidents don't enjoy it. We have President Coolidge slipping away. i, I got a good story about President Coolidge too. He was a very odd president. He used to dress up in... Very camp, sort of cowboy gear, you know, white trousers and lots of things going on. I know, it's very nice, it's very nice, very (laughs) very decorative. But he was famously untalkative. And there's a famous story about a woman who managed to get a a seat on his table at a dinner at the White House. And she goes, Oh, Mr. President, I'm so excited to sit next to you because I got a bet I won't get more than three words out of you. And he just goes, you lose, and eats his dinner. <laughs> <laughs> he just carries on with his dinner. And she did lose her bet.
2: Was it of him that his death was reported and Dorothy Parker said, how could they tell? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't know, it should be him. It should be him. And um, so he objected. To, he would try and slip out as well. Woodrow Wilson, when he was courting as a widower, he didn't really enjoy having it. So there's a huge resistance to what we consider today to be the prime focus of the Secret Service. And from 1917 onwards, it became a felony to even threaten the life of a president. And the Secret Service was brought in to protect the first family as well. And this escalated in 1951 as society was seen to get more and more dangerous that the vice president... And the president-elect would also have this protection. And then after Bobby Kennedy's assassination, all presidential candidates were given uh, Secret Service protection as well. So we had to go back now, really, to how powerful they could be. When Second World War overtook America after Pearl Harbor, the Secret Service insisted that the White House be painted in camouflage and have machine gun turrets in every corner. Well, Franklin D. Roosevelt, cousin of the previous Teddy, refused to go along with this. And there has been some tension between the two. But essentially, they are seen as the finest of the fine. And we see presidential families paying testimony to how important they are. And there are now two divisions of the Secret Service. the uniform division who look after the White House and the environs of that building and also they look after the residents of the vice president and 170 foreign embassies in Washington. And then there's a special agent division. And rather wonderfully, given the history of this secret service, they are still part of the counterfeiting forgery and financial crime unit. <laughs> uh, and I think that's rather wonderful that nice, they're still there. Coming back to home to England, it's much more interesting in a historical perspective because of the wider history of England. The first great spymaster that I could come across was Francis Walsingham who was one of Elizabeth I's most devoted attendants. And he rose to be the equivalent of the Foreign Secretary or the US Secretary of State in the 1560s. And we look back on Elizabeth I's life as, well, a very long life with a very long reign from the 1550s to 1603. But there were an enormous number of people who worked very hard to try and cut her life short. And Walsingham, time and again, was the reason why she survived into old age for the time. He was absolutely determined that Catholics would not get her. He had been a witness to massacres in France himself. He'd seen a massacre in front of him of Protestants. He was very worried about creeping assassinations across Europe. William of Orange was killed in 1584 by an assassin. And he was very much aware that the prime candidate to unseat Elizabeth was Mary, Queen of Scots, uh, Elizabeth I's cousin, who was kept pretty much as a prisoner for a very long time, but was a focus, a sort of lightning rod for Catholic insurrection. And Walsingham was very pleased, really, when he felt he could finally do away with Mary, Queen of Scots. Queen Elizabeth didn't want to kill her cousin, but in 1586, a man called Babington was caught, leading a plot of Catholics in England with a foreign invasion promised. And Walsingham was intercepting Mary Queen of Scots' correspondence without her knowing. He was a master of steaming open correspondence without people knowing it had been looked at. And he presented the evidence to Elizabeth that Mary Queen of Scots was prepared for Elizabeth to be put to death and the Catholics to triumph with her imposed as Queen. And this finally persuaded Elizabeth to agree to Mary Queen of Scots execution in February, 1587. And in fact, a lot of it, a lot of the evidence against Mary Queen of Scots on top of the very obvious was massaged in a rather sinister way by Walsingham to get rid of her because he, he really needed her out the way.
2: On what river stood the castle on which Mary <laughs> Queen of Scots was executed?
1: It's the Nen. That's correct. Yes, yes. Fotheringay Castle. Or oh, Fothering, Fothering where? I say Fotheringay and you say Fotheringhay. There you go. Yeah. I know. It's a quagmire of danger that. But we look at Walsingham, you know, we think 16th century, how could they do this? What were they doing? Well, it's very interesting that a lot of Walsingham's tactics were the same as those of the 20th and even the 21st century: dead letter boxes, ciphers. He used invisible ink, blackmail, forgery, and torture. He he used the full panoply of the spymaster's tools to save his monarch. And he entered debt. He spent an enormous amount of his own money building up this network. He had 53 spies in England, 18 agents overseas and informants everywhere. And he set up his headquarters in the wonderfully named Seething Lane near the Tower of London, directed operations out of there. And it's thanks to him, as well as the weather, that the Spanish Armada was undone because he heard from his spy in Rome that Philip II was definitely planning this invasion and set about building up the defences in England, but also undermining the Spanish efforts. He sent Drake in to hammer the fleet that was stationed in Lisbon, in Portugal, and sank 37 ships there. And at the same time, he put the pressure on Italian banking families not to loan money to Philip while he was building up his fleet. So he compromised them and held it up for a year, by which time he had built up the helped the british navy to build up its own resources sounds a very recognisable modern sort of sensibility at work there Yes, he's he's a fascinating figure because yeah. he he was ahead of his time, but it was done out of genuine loyalty. He hated the Catholics. He loved his queen. So, it was some Saint Bartholomew Day massacre was he? A That's what he to saw. That? That's what he saw himself. Horrendous. Yeah. yeah. I then want to sort of fast forward a bit in the remaining time I have left to the secret intelligence service that has been in existence since 1909, which I believe makes it probably the longest-serving, continuous, still in operation secret service in the world. And it was started out of a a fear of what Germany was up to. England at this time was rife with suspicions that German spies were around. If you read P.G. Woodhouse novels at the time, he references this fear of German spies everywhere, which was overblown. I mean, we now know the war was coming five years later, but it was overblown, and the Prime Minister Asquith set up this secret intelligence service.
2: Was it a fear of naval
1: power? Yes, there was this great fear that the the Germans and actually the French were building up their naval power and the British, who had for over 100 years dominated the sea, were feeling rather threatened. Mm. But there's the first boss of the Secret Service Bureau, which was the serious successor to all this, but it's still part of the secret intelligence service, was a man called Mansfield Cumming, a 50-year-old naval officer who was a workaholic. In fact, in his diary, he writes that he turns up for work a week before a department starts, and he was most disappointed to find nobody in the <laughs> office and no, nothing to do. <laughs> anyway, he becomes this great figure in British intelligence history. If you think of James Bond, the fictionalised spy, he has a boss called M, but in real life, in the Secret Service, the boss is called C, named after Cumming. The head of the Secret Service now still writes in green ink, which was a habit that Cumming had. And he set down many of the things that we would recognize today, the terminology for files, etc., that they write to each other. They're all down to him. These people I want to get to because I realize that I'm running out of time. And I, this is not my favorite fact. i am still got that up my sleeve. But one of the units that the Secret Service in England ran during the First World War was called La Dame Blanche, the White Lady. And this was a network of 800 members in enemy-occupied Europe. They were mainly women who watched train movements in Belgium and got messages back to the Secret Service in England. One of the more remarkably clever one of these agents was a midwife who was allowed to go between enemy lines back and forth. And she would stitch messages into the whalebone of the hoops of her skirt and never asked any questions by the, the trusting Germans. But they were incredibly useful, and Cummings believed in employing females in key roles. They were very well paid, whether they were secretaries, typists, clerks, or drivers, and they were augmented by wounded service men. From the front, people who couldn't go back to the front, who had a very good brain, who could be used in the war effort. But I think the legacy of this man is the is GCHQ, is that it would be the great one, which is now eavesdrops around the world and cracks codes, etc. But that is the successor of Bletchley Park, which of course I've dealt with in a previous one, dealing with ciphers, etc. But this was Bletchley Park was bought for six thousand pounds when the war was clearly coming in 1938 and set up as the the Secret Service's headquarters. The more active agents went back to London when, just before war was declared, but the codebreakers stayed there and obviously made a huge contribution to the war. But I think the key with all these people is that it started almost in an amateur way Mm -hmm. as a sort of, anti-German device, but it went on to be... I'm only dealing with up to the war years, but it obviously went on as a a major operative in the Cold War, working with the CIA in League and planning in case there was even a Third World War. They're they're very much alive today. But I wanted to just go back to the the roots of a a really interesting service. Fascinating.
0: Brilliant. And what is your favourite fact then?
1: So as so often with my favourite facts, it's actually a favourite person who I'd never heard of and I believe should be better known. She's called Marie Madeleine Fourcard. And she was the head of the Alliance Network, which was uh, useful, very useful in occupied France during World War II. She set up a, a system of 145 agents by August 1942. And they were looking for German troop movements, secret weapons, and and also returning downed airmen to the UK. And although her bosses said, look, you know, your maximum life expectancy is six months as a head of a department like this she stayed for two and a half years and then eventually came back in 1943 with some airmen who she was smuggling back but then got dropped back into germany soon after d-day because she knew the ground as well as anyone and she got caught by the gestapo now she was considered an incredible beauty a very slim beauty and she managed just by actually taking her clothes off to get out of the bars of the window of her Gestapo cell and to escape. And this is a woman of extraordinary ability to survive. Of her people who worked for her, 438 were executed on being captured. But I love the fact that she went on to live till 1989, uh, which I think is a really lovely... Uh, reward for a very great lady of, of extraordinary bravery.
2: I mean, it's very moving, is isn't it? When you, when I was at Knightsbridge, when I was um, curate there. We had the memorial to the Fanny, the nursing yeomanry, but actually they were all women agents working at S.O.E. in the war. Odette Hallows and all that lot, and they would have a service every year, and they'd one diminishing number of some of the veterans. Modest as anything. No one ever said anything about what their real job had been during the war, but if you looked on the memorial outside, loads of GCs because yes. they're incredibly brave, and lots of them, of course, were killed in that conflict. Yes, but they never said about it. You know, it wouldn't have been considered the done thing, and also they were unbound by the Official Secrets Act. I guess. Uh,
0: yes. Mm. Comment from our disembodied voice,
3: Richard. You mentioned Dorothy Parker's remark. How could they tell it was indeed President Coolidge? <laughs> <Congratulations>. <laughs> yeah.
0: Excellent. Thank you for that. Nice like story of her.
1: Yeah, she's a good.
0: Very good. Heroin. Good one to know about. So I'm going to finish up this week by talking about one of my absolute favourite archaeological discoveries ever.
1: You're not talking about the Roman villa at no. Uh
0: Sorry, apart from the Roman villa at thought. Of, but there's an older one. Digging a deeper yeah. hole, I'm yeah, good at digging It's not hats.
2: all about me. Well, no. It's the Colosseum of the Midlands, as <laughs> so I think we have to call it now.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> apart from that, it is the Oseberg ship, or Oseberg
2: Ship. Oh, look. I say it improperly Norwegian. Oseberg. Oseberg. Yes, Ulseberg. Oh, that's good.
0: So this is one of the greats, well, actually the greatest, really, Viking ship that's ever been discovered, I think. We have several of them, but this is the most beautiful one. It's the one with some really intricate carvings. It dates from the 9th century and it's almost perfectly preserved. You can still go and see it. And It survived because of some really quite exceptional preservation conditions in the soil. Normally wood doesn't preserve very well in Scandinavia at all, but because there were lots of clays there, the wood didn't deteriorate. So about 95% of the original wood is still there. It's a ship that's 21.6 metres long and 5 metres wide, And it's got these uh, strakes, so it's clinker built. It's got overlapping planks, really, really intricate carvings. And it was found on a farm and excavated in 1904. So I'm going to do a Richard here and sort Mm. of say, come with me. (laughs) (laughs) Come with me to uh, the Oslo Fjord, just on the sort of western side of the fjord in 1904. And you will be there with a Swede, actually, a Swedish archaeologist, excavating this incredible ship. Now, this was actually the second one that was found. There's a one called Gokstad, which is from nearby, that was found towards the end of the 19th century. So they had all these burial mounds. They already knew that some of them contained these exceptional ships. And the landowner had been trying to see if he could find anything. Uh, one day started digging around and found a large piece of carved wood. So he took it to Oslo and he approached Professor Gabriel Gustafsson and he was convinced this was a Viking discovery, came and started excavating. And on August the 10th, In 1903, he informed the Norwegian press that this absolutely incredible ship had been found but if you came there to see the excavations you would literally just see the wood just sticking out the ship preserved more or less as it was buried yeah. 1100 years earlier apart from being crushed down a bit so the farmer was paid 12,000 Norwegian cronies, about thousand pounds but anyway so the point is that this ship was the burial of two individuals it was a real working ship we know that it was built in about 820 and it was built on the western coast of Norway actually so we can see that by looking at the wood types and the dendrochronology and match those tree rings tree growing types sailed over from the west coast the actual burial itself dates from 834 AD because it had a burial chamber on top so the individuals buried in it were in this chamber in which there were beds and that wood was felled in 834 so we know almost exactly when it was buried.
2: If you were a Ship destined for a ship's burial. Would you be made for that purpose, or would it just be the ship that the high status individual used?
0: That's a really, really good question. One of the things that they tried to do in 1989 was to recreate it. So a replica was made of the ship, and they sailed it out. It was called the end or the Queen, and uh, it sank. <laughs> <laughs> immediately oh, goodness. so they thought that this must mean that the ship was never made to be sailed so perhaps it was created especially but later on they, they somebody else made another replica and realized they were actually just really bad <laughs> at making a viking ships. so they just done it wrong <laughs> um but because it's so beautiful there's some I mean, exceptionally intricate carvings it's very different from other ships that are much more practical this seems to be more of a sort of nice ceremonial i I remember seeing it
2: for the first time and i literally
1: gasped yes it's it's just you can't believe it's so
2: beautiful yeah
0: and that it's real and it's completely 95 percent of this is real
1: can i ask the burial chamber on top yes would that have been a separate structure or is that just the bed
0: yeah so it's a separate it's like a sort of tent type shape basically so it's a chamber inside it were two beds these are completely made up with everything you need your bedding as if you know, somebody was just going to sleep in there. Yes, and then the grave goods around it are absolutely incredible. So it's not just the ship; you've got these three very ornate sleighs, presumably used in winter for possibly ceremonial purposes. Uh, one working sleigh. These are also beautifully carved. Lots of chests, some animal heads, clothing, shoes, combs, farm kitchen equipment, carts, and then the animals were sacrificed: two cows six dogs oh. and 15 horses. Ooh. So there's a hell of a lot of animals, everything that they're diseased would need uh, in the afterlife. Lots of textiles as well, imported silks, wools, embroideries, tapestries, incredibly huge tapestries that um, have these scenes. Remember you talked about berserkers, yes. these sort of... Mad warriors. warriors yeah. ...or whatever they are. There's images with people in a sort of procession wearing bearskins on mm-hmm. these tapestries. There were buckets, one of them containing apples. The most interesting thing, So, I mean, this is so beautiful and clearly extremely high status. The craftsmanship and the wealth, Mm. the fact that somebody can afford not just to create all of this, but also to give it away. So the descendants don't need it. They can Mm -hmm. afford to give it away. But the most interesting thing, I think, is that the two people buried in this ship were actually women. So it was one older and one younger woman, mm-hmm. so not a, a king, but thought to be queen, possibly with a servant or something like that. The older one seems to have had various illnesses. Mm. One of them had a collarbone that had reasonably broken a so really, really interesting So you've got this idea of these sort of wealthy, powerful men in the Viking Age, but actually the most spectacular grave is that of,
2: of two women. That seems like a completely counterintuitive fact to me. I've never thought that. I yeah. thought it was
1: only the kings that got that kind of dream. That How much is left of they... them? Just some, a few bones?
0: Quite a lot of the skeletons. They're reasonably well-preserved, yes. Yeah, so there's enough to, to sort of do more. So one thing they didn't have, so all this wealth, yeah, no jewellery, which is really odd, but it seems like that was actually... Probably originally there because, and this is probably one of these sort of oldest cold case mysteries that some of my colleagues have worked to solve, turns out the whole mound was robbed. And that's not unusual. Mm. Lots of these other ones have been robbed as well. But they've been able to narrow down more or less exactly when that happened. It was clearly not in modern times. They discover this really quickly, partially because... That burial chamber was there and the beds were all laid out but the bodies were sort of dragged out of it and a new trench was dug into the whole mound as well. So they very quickly realised that this had happened not immediately, so it was after the bodies had decomposed and turned into skeletons because the bones were sort of everywhere. But it was before the weight of the mound had started crushing the chamber down. and The that...
2: chamber retained its shape? And
0: Not, no. So it did for a while, but afterwards the huge mound on top crushed it down. No. But that would have happened several hundred years later. So we know that this trench and the bodies were pulled out after they were turned into skeletons, but before it was crushed down. So that narrows it down a bit. Yeah. But then the best bit is that not only did they find these trenches dug into them, they also found fourteen spades in the pit where they'd broken into it. So those yes, spades, spades were left by the grave robbers, because they obviously just went in, got what yes. they wanted, left the spades but behind. But I guess
2: if you were going to choose, to, well, shall I carry my spade or shall I carry this treasure? What so you don't you need it
0: anymore. You don't need it anymore. <laughs> Question. Yes.
2: Presumably, the treasure that they would extract might remain of a piece because it would go to whoever authorized that official. Robbery, right? So we might know where it might still be, it might still be together.
0: It might still be together and interesting, I do have a theory and nobody really agrees with me, but (laughs) there is is a a hoard in nearby, actually really quite nearby that was found a little bit later that dates to about the same time as this grave. spectacular gold hoard, loads of fantastic jewellery, it's called Hoard, and it's just buried in a field, and it dates from the same time, we don't know who it belongs to because it's exceptionally wealthy, mm-hmm. female jewellery, including a, a, a ring from Anglo-Saxon England, it's got some old Roman coins turned into necklaces, somebody with a huge amount of wealth and contacts, dates to the same time. Could they have broken into it, realised we've got to hide our loot and come back for it?
2: Any way you could try to prove that?
0: Not yet. I'm working on it, Richard. So one day I will. (laughs) 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 But I just love this. And and this is just the most spectacular.
1: And what's your favourite fact?
0: So the landowner who discovered the ship, he bought the farm quite soon before in 1903 Before that, another farmer had tried to farm this land, but he, at the end of the 19th century, travelled to America because he wanted to start a new life and make lots of money. But he had an encounter with a fortune teller that made him change his plans and go back to his farm again because he was told that he wouldn't make any money in America. He would make it back home in Norway. So he went back, he started searching, he knew about this other ship nearby, he never found it. But instead, oh, really he sold the farm, and then somebody else. Um, made so if he tried things. a little bit harder, yeah, exactly. the fortune teller would have been right.
2: Yeah, oh, there you go. You yeah. want to narrow it down a bit with the fortune teller, wouldn't you? So give a bit more, a bit <laughs> yeah, more exactly. yeah.
0: I mean, where to look and what to look for. So,
2: it is such go. a beautiful thing. I remember seeing it, and the it, thing that made me gasp it was the shape. Yes,
0: yes
1: the lines are stunning. Beautiful.
0: Yes. Yeah. Really, I mean, it's what made me want to study archaeology. Seeing it as sure? a nine-year-old child, just going in and
2: it didn't quite have the same effect when I was nine, going to the boot and shoe museum in Northampton.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I think now we've reached the final point. Our disembodied voice going to be completely undemocratically, as always. I'm not saying anything. Receive, I, think yeah. I think he's doing a great job. Shoes. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you haven't won. They're not an entirely great job. Hmm. No, very close this week, but the story of the Hedgehog, Resistance leader Marie Madeleine Fourcard's code name, Sweet. swung it in Charles's favour. Oh. That's a great story. It's a great story. Yes, in fact, good. I ordered well her done. book whilst it's you so were talking. With oh, you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you were on Amazon.
2: You were so bored. <laughs> I was so bored with listening to you, Richard. I went on to Amazon and ordered her book.
1: Quite understandable.
0: Excellent.
2: I Congratulations. had a parishioner she was French. She married a Pole and she was, worked for the Resistance in France, occupied France all. You know, I used to go and see her, and I would speak French to her sometimes. And one day she cried, and I said, "I'm sorry." This reminds you of a time. And she said, "No, it's because your French is so terrible." And okay. <laughs> and we stuck with English. But when she died, all of a sudden, I thought she had an obituary in the Telegraph. She turned out to have a Croix de guerre and Tough. she'd been incredibly brave. Yeah. Mm. And again, it was this thing about getting Allied airmen, mostly, yes. out of occupied France. Amazing woman. Yeah.
0: Before we go, we have to just decide on our topics for next week. Richard, yes. can you do synesthesia? Synesthesia?
2: synesthesia. I can't I'd even love say to, it. yeah. <laughs> you
0: can teach me how to say it properly. <laughs> Charles, Highwaymen?
1: I'd love to do that.
0: And I'm going to be looking into the Piltdown forgery. Oh, that's Very, a good one. That I is like good. that one a yeah. lot.
2: Stand and deliver, folks, next week. <laughs> yes. Did anyone ever say that? I'll tell you next week. Do you want to know an interesting fact about that? The white stripe makeup. On Adam uh, was created by Dave the hairy biker.
0: Mm. <gasps> no. Well, should we no, save it another time? We might save for
2: high women, actually, but it is a brilliant fact, don't you think?
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I think that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you to everyone out there for listening. Please do subscribe and leave us a review because it really helps people find us when they're looking for a new podcast to listen to. And you can also send us an email if you like, especially if you'd like to suggest a topic for us to research in the future, write to rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com. Don't forget, you can find us in the Daily Telegraph every Wednesday in our Rabbit Hole Detectives column discussing a favourite fact or two. So, in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice... She's so extremely likely to win that it's hardly worthwhile finishing the game.
3: Oh, rather fighting
0: tour. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see you next time, shall we? See you then. Know. All right, goodbye. <laughs>